Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. After the police murder of her father, George Floyd, Floyd's daughter Gianna, then six, observed, My daddy changed the world. Indeed, protests occurred in all 50 states, demanding racial justice and an end to police violence that inspired activists worldwide. They gave rise to federal police reform bills and commitments from cities to cut and reallocate police budgets. As we mark one year since Floyd's murder, we'll hear reflections from writer Zach Cheney Rice on why these efforts have stalled, and from historian Elizabeth Hinton, who writes, Last summer's protests are the latest manifestation of the unresolved inequality, injustice, and policing that engendered the protests of the 1960s. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As we reflect on George Floyd's murder one year ago and its impact on our national psyche, it's hard not to think about the Black Lives Matter protests his killing sparked last summer. The protests were sustained and widespread in all 50 states and were more racially diverse than past racial justice protests. And as Yale historian Elizabeth Hinton shows us in her new book, America on Fire, they also had important antecedents in the extreme protests that took hold in American cities between 1964 and 1972. Professor Hinton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. And your book is America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. Could you give us a sense of the scale and scope of the protests of that period from the mid to late 60s and early 70s and the injustices that they were animating back then? Sure. So this was the, the kind of period of sustained uh, domestic violence that 
the nation had not witnessed since the Civil War. There were well over 2,000 rebellions, and not just in big cities like Los Angeles and Detroit and Newark and Washington, D.C., but in smaller and mid-sized cities like Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Carver Ranchers, Florida, and Albuquerque, New Mexico, in rural communities, small towns across the United States, where residents rebelled against police violence that was and the expansion of police forces and militarized police forces that had encroached in their communities during and immediately after the civil rights movement. Mm, Yes, you explained that as the civil rights movement brought efforts at desegregation, anti-discrimination legislation, for example, we have the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. You talk about how Black Americans were facing new policing practices, where police became this threatening presence in Black communities and a violent presence in Black communities. Can you talk about just this parallel, these two historical trends co-occurring and how we knew so little about the latter? Right. So, you know, the the federal investment in local law enforcement began alongside the rollout of monumental civil rights legislation and, of course, the the war on poverty. So at the same time that the federal government is supporting job training initiatives and various programs to address racial discrimination. It's also supporting a massive new investment in local police forces and prisons and court systems that set the nation on the road to mass incarceration. So as, and especially after the enactment of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which was the first major piece of national law enforcement legislation, not just big cities, but again, you know, smaller cities, rural communities all across the United States, their police forces enlarged and police officers had military grade weapons at their disposal that had been financed by the federal government. So the helicopters, the armored tanks, the M4 and M16 carbine rifles, tear gas, bulletproof vests, riot control helmets, all of these things that are kind of ubiquitous in policing today had their origins here in the the 1960s and were the result of uh, surplus military transfers from Vietnam. And ultimately, the federal government's punitive priorities won out over its war on poverty, over attacking the kind of socioeconomic conditions that lead to crime and violence in our communities, and instead increasingly embraced police and prisons as a way to manage the material consequences of poverty and inequality as they emerged uh, through crime and and violence in in low-income communities of color. Can you give some examples about of what you mean by one out, uh, do you mean in terms of resources, focus, things like that? In terms of resources and in terms of the commitment of federal policymakers and officials at all levels of government. So, you know, the Office of Economic Opportunity that steered the, the community action programs of the war on poverty never received permanent implementation. But in that 1968 legislation, the Safe Streets Act, the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance that steered the programs of the early war on crime became the largest grant-making agency within the Department of Justice as the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. Uh, The 60s ended up with not a job creation program for low-income Americans that had been uh, floated around as a goal for the war on poverty and recommended by Lyndon Johnson's own uh, 
crime commission, uh, but instead we get a job creation program for police and the massive expansion of police forces. Increasingly as well, federal policymakers incentivize various crime control programs over social welfare programs The social welfare programs that had steered the war on poverty, like community action programs, Head Start job training programs, you name it. Mm-hmm. And the, the commitment to increasing policing and surveillance and invest in eventually incarceration in targeted communities of color became the a short-term solution with uh with long-term ramifications for American society that we're still very much dealing with today yes one of the key observations in your book is that basically this increased presence the police violence and aggression that it precipitates community violence in what you describe as a vicious vicious cycle. Can you talk about this relationship and more about how this cycle works? Right, and so this is also really important in terms of the how we understand these incidents of political violence and, and in labeling them riots and criminal, then the only solution becomes more police force, even though the residents who threw rocks and bottles at police and burned buildings and looted stores, their grievances were the shared grievances of mainstream civil rights organizations at the time. That is, the the rebellions were about access to full political and economic inclusion in the United States, Uh, a a complete reversal of the status quo where where Black Americans were essentially treated as second-class citizens and not just in Southern states, of course. The rebellions were about uh, the expansion of job opportunities, the creation of jobs, decent housing, education, robust educational systems, very much rooted in the socioeconomic conditions that that much of the civil rights movement sought to improve. And in labeling this political violence as nothing other than criminal and embracing the police as a solution, we've been trapped in this cycle. When police come to respond to a protest um, uh, by by residents who are who are fighting against the the presence of police in their everyday lives, the policing of ordinary everyday activity, this sets a cycle in motion where then then the po- an increased police response becomes uh, the the next stage, and then residents in turn, as police response escalates, escalate with greater political violence. And we saw this cycle play out in a number of cities and a number of rebellions, and this cycle continues to play out today. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies and Professor of Law at Yale University. Her new book is America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Uh, Dr. Hinton also wrote a recent New York Times opinion piece titled Getting Beyond the Fire Next Time, related to reflecting on the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And that's what we're doing today, talking about the one-year anniversary and the struggle for meaningful police reform. I want to invite your listeners to join the conversation. Do you remember the protests of the 1960s and 70s that uh, Elizabeth Hinton is talking about? What connections do you draw between them and last summer's Black Lives Matter protests? And if you are reflecting on this one-year marker, do you remember how you were feeling this time last year? How are you feeling today? If you'd like to share it, you can do so at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
Elizabeth Hinton, one thing I've been struck by is that you do not downplay the destruction or the violence of the events by both police and also by protesters. For example, you write that uh, from 1964 to 1972, in the North and South, East and the West, in the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt, and nearly every city, small or large, where Black people lived in segregated, unequal conditions, residents threw rocks and bottles at police, shot at them with rifles, smashed the windows of businesses and institutions, hurled firebombs, and plundered stores. Is it deliberate for you to just say it straight out? Well, one of the really important lessons, and this, you know, is is what we've been talking about. One the important lessons of this period that we need to heed today is that police violence precipitates community violence. Residents responded violently to both conditions and policing practices that they experienced as violent. And in many communities felt they had no other recourse but to turn to violence in order to get the larger socioeconomic objectives met in in most of the communities that rebelled, if not all. The rebellions were the outgrowth of decades of nonviolent direct action, civil rights protests, petitions, lawsuits as part of the larger struggle for civil rights. And none of this had worked to actually change material conditions or outcomes in many low-income Black communities in the United States. And so residents resorted to extremely violent measures um, as a response to the, the unheard calls to improve violent conditions. You... We've heard you say rebellion several times through this, and you make a point to say that protests against this kind of over-policing at the time are better stood as rebellion. Can you talk about why you use that term and why you find the term riot so problematic? Right. So, you know, beginning with Harlem in 64, which was the first kind of major uh, incident of unrest that that galvanized the nation and, of course, the Johnson administration, Johnson was very clear that, you know, in his words, that that the that the rebellion in Harlem had nothing to do with civil rights, that it was criminal, that it was meaningless, that it was tied to problems of juvenile delinquency. Of course, drawing our attention away from the socioeconomic root causes that I've been talking about that that drove residents to feel they had no other recourse to rebel. And so in in labeling this political violence as criminal, the solution, the only solution then becomes more policing. And especially with hindsight, we know that the embrace of police and and the embrace of surveillance and prisons at the direct expense of social welfare programs and investments of different kinds of resources into into communities that residents themselves wanted in terms of jobs, housing, healthcare, the, the, the rebellions only continue because the police and surveillance becomes the only solution when we use terminology that make this political action criminal. We're talking with Elizabeth Hinton. Her new book is America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion since the 1960s. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're reflecting on the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd and the struggle for meaningful police reform with Elizabeth Hinton, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies and Professor of Law at Yale University. Her new book is America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. Her recent New York Times opinion piece is Getting Beyond the Fire Next Time. Elizabeth Hinton, you write that Black people today and the nation at large are still experience, experiencing the aftershocks, you call them, of the 1960s and 70s. Can you explain what you mean by this? It is that, you know, consistently we've been stuck in this, as we've been talking about, cycle of police violence and this police paradigm, the, the increased reliance on police and prisons to manage, again, the, the material consequences of, of poverty and structural racism and, and inequality. When we, we need to begin to look beyond the police and think about different sets of investments that we can make in our communities. And there's a precedent for this, of course, you know, um, during the rebellion of 67, Lyndon Johnson called the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, known as the Kerner Commission, to investigate the, the causes and, and the solutions to the rebellions that, uh, that had raptured the nation during every summer of his presidency. And the Kerner Commission said, if we really want to get at the root causes of these issues, recognizing their socioeconomic um, underlying motivations, the Kerner Commission said, we need a massive investment in low-income communities of color. We need a major job creation program that would mobilize the resources of both the public and private sectors. We need to build robust public schools. We need an, a complete overhaul of dilapidated and deteriorating public housing. And we need to support community action programs that are going to continue to fund promising community organizations at the grassroots level. The Kerner Commission had the answers more than 50 years ago, and they were ignored. And consistently, we see various commissions and blue ribbon panels evaluating this is these issues, evaluating racial inequality, stepping in in the aftermath of racial tensions or rebellions and saying we need a structural intervention. And consistently, policymakers at all levels of government have been resistant to these kinds of changes. And so the, the decision to continue to em embrace policing and surveillance and incarceration has all but ensured that, that, that these inequalities behind the violence and that the violence itself and the protests themselves in both their nonviolent and violent forms would continue. We are still dealing with the consequences of this misguided policy path. And, you know, you have to wonder what would the United States look like today had policymakers embraced the kinds of investments the Kerner Commission was calling for instead of the investments that the war on crime and later the war on drugs had mm. called for. Well, listener Philip asks, when did the police stop seeing themselves as peace officers? Is there a start to this? Would you say it is around that time post, the, you know, in the mid 1960s? Well, I think increasingly, you know, as police forces expanded in the communities of color that had been targeted by federal policymakers. I mean, part of the national strategy for the war on crime was to saturate low-income community of communities of color with police, both to prevent future rebellion and, and to find uh, criminals and potential criminals. I think once the objective became getting the bad guys and, and once ideas really took hold 
about blackness and criminality, people of color and criminality and, and ideas, especially by the mid seventies that, you know, that, that some uh, segments of the population are just latently criminal and there's kind of no rehabilitative hope. And so the best thing to do is to essentially lock them up and throw, throw away the key police work became at least in low-income communities of color about finding the bad guys and not necessarily protecting citizens and fostering public greater public safety. Well, let me go next to caller Buck in San Francisco. Hi, Buck. Hello, uh, ma'am. I completely agree with your analysis. Um, I work pretty extensively in low-income communities to a certain extent, to a large extent, African-American communities around the issue of violent crime. And People have been confronted with this quandary where they do not want abusive policing, but they do need help in stopping violence while we're working on the long-term issues of racism and poverty. Um, I've found that if if the people in the development or in a community are organized and have some power over the way that the police are present in their development or in their communities— We've been able to have some success. The difficulty is what do you do about violent crime in low-income communities, often black communities, while we're addressing the root causes, which sadly we'll probably be doing for the rest of our lives. Mm. I wondered if you had any examples of success, successful control by black communities over the police where they're able to not have police brutality, but have the police have some direct impact on violent crime in their communities. Buck, thanks. Elizabeth Hinton, any thoughts? Yeah, that's such a great uh, point, Buck, and I really appreciate it. And, and you know, this, this embrace in the post-civil rights period of kind of crime control and policing as the most thoroughly implemented social program in low-income communities, as we know, has created this situation where especially young people of color are, are are now more vulnerable to premature death either by each other or by a police officer. So that, you know, the same neighborhoods that are energetically police suffer from some of the highest rates of gun violence. I think, you know, so that one suggests that the kind of heavy handed zero tolerance police response um, is a failure. And I think, you know, what we need to be supporting Buck is exactly what you're talking about. We need community-based violence reduction interventions. I think one of the most promising ones that I'm familiar with uh, began in in Richmond, California, and it's called Advanced Peace. And uh, for people who were formerly involved in in, in so-called gangs or um, had have been incarcerated or uh, been involved in gun violence and have changed um, now are fellows who work with young men and women who are susceptible to shooting other people or getting shot themselves. And we know that these kind of community-based programs that provide new opportunities for youth who are vulnerable to gun violence have a much, much better um, overall impact on on rates of gun violence and on crime rates than in arrests and incarceration, which we know is is a con- has continually failed to uh, stem the tide of gun violence in the, the nation's most vulnerable communities. So what we need to do, and I think this is really the future of public safety, is to can, is to empower community organizations who are doing around the country the best work 
to address the, the specific problems of violence and crime and public safety in their communities on their own terms. Well, Buck, thanks for the question. As I hear you speak, um, Dr. Hinton, I'm, I'm struck by this line that you had written, and I'm thinking of it now, where you write that, you know, it's not a matter of if another city will catch fire, but when, and that rebellions will surely continue. And you write, unless police are no longer called on to manage the consequences of dismal conditions beyond their control. Can you talk about what you mean by by this and who you think really the is is responsible? I mean, there are many many different uh, players that are all responsible in this, but I just was struck by that line. Yeah, so this is again the, the reflective of this trend, this post civil rights trend, where you know we have disinvested, our elected officials have disinvested from social welfare programs and vibrant social institutions in especially low-income communities of color. And in many vulnerable neighborhoods, police are kind are the last public institution standing. They are the frontline representatives of the state, which is in part why you know, we continue to see these violent clashes between residents and, and police. And as a result of being that frontline representative within in an under-resourced community that's been disinvested from, that doesn't have other kinds of vibrant institutions um, and, and access to resources, police end up having to, to handle and manage all sorts of social problems that they aren't necessarily trained to. You know, I, I've heard a police chief recently refer to the officers and, and his force as social workers with guns. And that doesn't make any sense. We actually need social workers. We actually need to begin reframing these issues of crime and violence as public safety issues and as public health issues and a, a, a far less punitive approach to actually dealing with the problems that are facing uh, many, many communities throughout the United States. And we know that 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 kind of different, less punitive approach does happen in terms of the ways in which middle class and suburban communities interact with state institutions. This is a specific program that's been targeted in low income communities of color in particular. And we if we want to allow police, we want to create a path where public safety officers aren't charged with managing material conditions that are beyond their control, then we need to begin to invest in different sets of resources to create vibrant communities so that police officers are needed as a on a far less basis and may themselves be ultimately rendered obsolete. I know you need to leave us, Elizabeth Hinton, but before you do, we did have this one comment come in from Sean that I think gets at some of the racist underpinnings of what we're talking about here. Sean writes, your guest presents the juxtaposition of the expansion of civil rights with the expansion of police powers. White society in the 60s and beyond saw blacks as other in all respects. Could it be that lawmakers thought that if America was going to open up to a more racially inclusive re reality, it would need to control the parts of black culture that they feared, whether legitimately or not? I think it's I think that's certainly an aspect of it, but I think it's a larger question that, you know, that, that has been the story of the United States since its founding. And that is that political and economic elites have been resistant to enacting policies that would finally diminish and obliterate the racial hierarchies that have defined this country uh, historically. And 
we have never uh, lived up to the principle of equality. It seems like it's been, it's kind of an a founding principle that, that many uh, politicians and economic elites are wary of. And we, you know, now this is the crossroads that, that we're now facing. This is what the protests in 2020 are about. What kind of country do we want to be? Do we want to be racially inclusive? Do we want to address the, the kind of stains of racial oppression and exploitation that have, that have characterized our history from its very beginnings? And can we and will we ever govern according to the principle of equality rather than principles of division and uh, and social control. Well, you leave us with a lot of important questions to think about, Elizabeth Hinton. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth Hinton, Associate Professor of History and African American Studies and Professor of Law at Yale University. Her new book is America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion. Joining us now is Zach Cheney Rice, a New York Magazine features writer. Cheney Rice's latest piece is His Name in Vain. One year later, America is struggling to reform and reimagine the agencies that have been licensed to kill us. Welcome to Forum, Zach Cheney Rice. Thank you so much for having me. The title of your piece and also what you write in it, I, I want to read one line from it. You write, over the past year, we have seen death transmuted into rebellion, only to be sublimated into reforms that reproduce the same violence. The title, what I just read, it leads me to believe that as we're talking about this crossroads um, that Elizabeth Hinton just left us with, uh, that that perhaps you're not terribly optimistic we might move in the right direction, but let me know if I'm wrong in my characterization. No, that's a fair characterization, I think. I think um, what we saw kind of in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder was uh, a, com a kind of like a tremendous rush to um, appease some of the passions that were clearly aroused in the population around, you know, what was needed to be done about policing and about um, changing how we as Americans interact with our law enforcement apparatus. And a lot of promises were made, a lot of commitments were made that I think it's fair to say to this point at least have not nearly lived up to their rhetoric, have not been fulfilled. And um, I think there are several examples of that from, you know, Minneapolis, I think was one of the more ambitious um, examples of, of a promise to completely reimagine their law enforcement apparatus as a city that, uh, the city council made that eventually was overturned by an old charter that said it wasn't allowed. Now that now local activists are are pushing to get it on uh, the November ballot as a referendum. Um, Minneapolis public schools severed their relationship with the police department, only to kind of replace a lot of their duties with uh, sort of public safety specialists who, uh, many of whom had a background in law enforcement corrections private security. Um, so the changes were not as momentous as a lot of the rhetoric would lead us to believe. And I think um, that risks being a common feature moving forward um, in a lot of cities. Yes. And I appreciate the examples that you just gave about Minneapolis to illustrate that point. So for anyone tempted to see the Chauvin murder victor, vi verdict, the Chauvin murder verdict as a 
course correction for the criminal justice system. What's your response to that? I think we've seen over and over again that it is a, it has this tremendous cathartic potential in seeing police officers go on trial and potentially be convicted just because it is so rare and it fits so neatly with our popular conceptions of what accountability looks like. At the same time, if you want to look at the bigger picture of what this has changed about policing in general, um, I mean, if the problem that, that, we, that we are hoping that this is going to resolve or properly address is, is the rate of police killings and police violence, then all you have to do is look at the numbers to know that the, you know, ever since this has been kind of an issue at the forefront of the American popular consciousness, I, I would argue that began in earnest in the past seven years with, with the Ferguson uprisings, um, the rate of police killings has, has not slowed. Right. It's essentially the same year over year. You have roughly a thousand people a year. This is according to um, the Washington Post's great database on police shootings alone. This, this isn't even, other, this isn't even account for other modes of police killings. Um, right. The rate is the same. I mean, so, so clearly there's a disconnect between what we feel about this and the cathartic potential of these kinds of convictions and what they are actually delivering as as like material results. And even on the day itself and, and leading up to it, there were killings. And in addition, even if you look at the the way that the arguments were made to try to get the verdict at all, it was definitely emphasized that this was not necessarily an indictment of institutions as much as it was basically a, a rogue actor. We're talking with Zach Cheney Rice, a staff writer for New York Magazine and author of the recent article, His Name in Vain, about the murder of George Floyd. We're reflecting with Zach Cheney Rice and earlier with Elizabeth Hinton about the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd and the struggle for meaningful police reform. And you, our listeners, of course, can continue to join us with your reflections of last year, how you were feeling then, how you are feeling now. Also with your assessment of how America is reckoning with its history of police violence. Where are you? Are there things that give you hope, things that give you pause? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I also want to let you know that tonight at 7 p.m., as we continue to mark the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, KQED is airing a special program produced by KPCC and reporting partners around the state looking at police accountability measures and efforts across California. So we hope you'll join us for that. Stay with us for more Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Zach Cheney Rice, a staff writer for New York Magazine, a features writer there. His recent feature is His Name in Vain about the murder of George Floyd. If you want to join the conversation with your reflections as we mark this day, one year of from his murder, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Our email address, forum at kqed.org. You can also post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You know, Zach Cheney Rice, just before the break, we were talking about just the travesty of all the killings. But one of the things that I was really struck by was that in this piece that you write, His Name in Vain, you decide to mark one year by focusing on those who encounter police and do not die. Can you tell us about Kaya Kirkland um, and uh, just her story? Because it's a really powerful, I think, both in and of itself, but also just a statement on where we are. Yeah. So uh, a few months before George Floyd was murdered, um, a little six-year-old girl named Kyra Roll was arrested at her charter school in Orlando, Florida, after throwing a tantrum that was um, brought on by pediatric sleep apnea, which, you know, makes obviously children lose a lot of sleep and become irritable and, and prone to tantrums during the day. Mm. She allegedly kicked a teacher. Um, the details of, of why and how specifically are unclear because the school uh, declined to sort of speak with her grandmother, Marilyn Kirkland, about the incident. But the understanding is that Kaya kicked a teacher and one of the school resources, school resource officers who patrolled the campus was summoned and uh, put Kaya in zip ties, put her in the back seat of a police car, brought her to a juvenile processing center where she was, um, where she was fingerprinted, uh, her mugshot was taken, she was charged with um, simple battery, which is a misdemeanor. And which is something that was resolved, uh, I guess, to the, to the expectations of, I think, a lot of what we would understand as um, as the kind of course correction we would hope to see in the aftermath of an issue like this, which is that the charges were dropped within days. Um, the officer involved was was fired, although on a technicality because he was supposed to reach out to a supervisor to get permission to arrest a child under 12. He did not do that. And that's why he was fired. Um, but, you know, all of the things that, that could have led Kaya further down sort of the road of this school to prison pipeline and, and into the criminal punishment system. This was sort of stopped in its tracks by a lot of people within the system who recognized pretty soon afterwards that this was a horribly, um, a horrible way to treat a child, basically, in this particular circumstances. My goal with the piece was to tell this story and sort of look at what has happened since and how Kaya has reacted and responded since and how her family has been affected in the time since. And what I think becomes really clear and why I chose this story is that this is this is something that continues to affect Kaya and her family, both psychologically and financially, um, in unexpected ways. And it's really raises the question of, of whether it is enough. I mean, we've seen deaths by police provoke outrage and cause rioting and uprisings and mass protests. Um, but what is it enough that Kaya didn't die in the circumstances? I mean, we 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 see the kind of devastation that every day um, non-fatal policing can have, 
on people, but not just people, children. And whether this is something that, um, that we're reckoning with to the extent that we should be when we respond to incidents of police violence and in death. I thought this was a really powerful observation, but you wrote, we can choose to be sated by more cops in jail, by the cathartic promise of trials and convictions and the suggestion that the system can self-regulate, or we can insist that bargaining for mere survival is not enough. Can you talk about the impact that it has had on, on Kaya, just from the moment that you talk about how her grandmother, Ms. Kirk, Kirkland showed up for Kaya and that at the juvenile assessment center and that she was clearly traumatized. Yeah. So um, first they were kind of the physical markers of what Kaya, the six-year-old girl had endured. She was uh, police cars don't typically have booster seats for six-year-old children. So she was buckled in the back seat like an adult um, with her zip, with her hands zip tied behind her every time the car turned a corner or stopped at a traffic sign. Um, it rubbed into her wrists, causing red abrasions. Um, she was sobbing. Um, by her grandmother's account, she was repeating um, her grandmother's phone number like an incantation and had sort of been begging uh, the processors at the juvenile facility to call her. Um, and that was just the day that she was processed. And in the following days, in the following weeks, it became very clear that she had developed um, a kind of deep-seated fear of the police, of uniformed police officers. And this, is, this has been a target of, um, of therapy she's been in ever since. Uh, her therapist is doing a sort of reprogramming um, program to... to sort of break the association that Kaya now has between policing and violence and fear, which is a bit ironic because it is, this is a very well-earned sense that she has that the police are a threat. Um, but she's now going through therapy where she's being shown cartoons and renderings of police doing nice things like saving kittens from trees, driving children around in parades to sort of teach her, reteach her that the police can be your friend and they could be harmless and, and need to help. And at the same time, her fear of police has prevented her from being re-enrolled in a typical public school. You know, after the, um, the mass shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland in 2018, a law was passed to the Florida legislature that required all public schools to be patrolled by armed police. Um, so the first day that Kaya was, was there, her family was trying to re-enroll her in public schools, um, they pulled up front, Kaya saw a police car parked out front and panicked and demanded that her grandmother drive her away. Um, she would not tolerate being in the presence of police officers. She was sure that the police was uh, the police were there to to redetain her and to hurt her. Um, so her grandmother's had to find alternative schooling, which has cost money that, you know, on her salary has been unaffordable, even with um uh, even with the scholarship that she's been able to get, been able to get, um, she's had to go through rounds of internet crowdfunding to sort of pay for Kaya's medical care, her therapy, and her new schooling. So it's just been a series of consequences that have reverberated outward from an incident where, again, it bears repeating, this child didn't die. This is not the kind of tragedy that tends to get. Um, at least in recent years, that tends to get large numbers of people into the streets. This is something that 
she has to live with uh, indefinitely. And not only that, I'd make this note in the piece that the goal of her therapy is not just to kind of ease her uh, anxiety when she's sort of moving through the public day to day or trying to go back to school where police are going to be patrolling. It's also to sort of to, to prevent the very kind of tragedy that people out in the streets protesting about um, happening to her. If she encounters a police officer as an adult, is pulled over, um, you know, having this kind of post-traumatic stress informed fear of police is something that could cause her to react erratically, uh, to speed off a, 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 during a traffic stop and, and eventually get her killed. So there's a lot of different concerns informing um, how she's being treated and the healing process she's going through. And none of this is accounted for um, if we focus so much on policing as catastrophic, specifically when it ends in somebody being killed. We're talking about the struggle for meaningful police reform on the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. We're talking with Zach Cheney Rice, a features writer for New York Magazine and you are listeners. Let me go to Tom in Los Gatos. Hi, Tom. Hi, Mina. A great show and thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I think it would really be a good idea since we've invested so much in our highly militarized, steroid-driven uh, police, apparently, that before we debilitarize and defund our police, uh, totally reform our police to make them uh, social workers without guns, I think uh, we should set them loose on the white-collar crime and corruption that's been deviling our country. Uh, you know, just in the uh, real estate industry alone, the medical industry, you know, the profits are, you know, 400 to 600 percent of standard profits. That's, that's you know, drug uh, trafficking range. Uh, so we should clean up our, our society first uh, of all the white collar criminals with these hard, hard bitten police officers that we already have employed and then defund the police. Tom, well, thanks for your observation. Um, I don't know if you have a reaction to that, Zach Cheney Rice, so much as I, I do wonder about um, if you want to talk a little bit about the systemic issues with police, but also just the focus, uh, I think, is what Tom is, is raising in terms of how, you know, that has created a lot of these issues that we're seeing today. Yeah, I think, I think in a way, um, what, what Tom is getting at is not... S- not not so, so much what we have come to understand as a society as as crime, as he is talking about um, harm and accountability for harm. And I think kind of one of the great mistakes of the last several years, or and mistake is it, it's sort of hard to cast it that way because you know we were dealing with um, catastrophe after catastrophe, and obviously there are a, a lot of different emotions aroused and a lot of different potential solutions posed. It it, it certainly isn't a mistake to be outraged by it. But I think when we turn to um, the same system that produces the problems to to then resolve it, I think we are um, making an error in kind of the process we're going through to generate a real solution um, and figure out how that people can be account how how people can be held accountable for harm without necessarily being punished in the traditional criminal sense, as Tom observes uh, by kind of roided out police with military gear. Um, that's certainly not something that I think is an effective or 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 good long term solution to 
to anything we've come to categorize as crime. Um, but I, I understand the point he's, he's making about harm and accountability. Yes. Speaking of which, what do you think of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for example? Because that is one that has been introduced. Um, it's a federal uh, policy. It's a federal act. It sounds like it's still, though, turning to the same institutions to some extent. Um, how effective do you think it will be to try to solve its own problems? Well, I think it's fairly simple. I think if it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to moderate, moderately reduce the rate of police killings, police misconduct, um, there's a possibility that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has an effect um, on that, on kind of stemming the tide. I, if your goal is to stop it, if your goal is to stop unjust policing, violent policing, um, police killings, it, I, I really don't see this having that effect. Um, I think a big part of the problem is that we're relying a lot on back-end solutions that we assume are going to be deterrents without ha- without any evidence to that effect. In fact, quite to the contrary, um, I make the point in my piece that literally the mayor of Atlanta, after the killing of, of Rayshard Brooks mm-hmm. last June, um, admitted openly that so many of the proposed reforms that were being floated in response to George Floyd hadn't worked. You know, uh, bias training, um, body cameras, these things have not meaningfully reduced the rate of police killings. And then went on to propose, the mayor went on to propose many of the exact same potential solutions to the problem that she had just outlined as not having worked. So I think that it's become easy to, 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 to offer a lot of the things that are, a lot of the provisions that are in the, the George Floyd Act. Um, I think a lot of them are very popular. I think data collection is popular. I think body cameras are popular. These are politically safe um, provisions to offer up. But if we're looking to, to solve the problem that caused all the rebellions and uprisings and protests last year, I just don't see it happening. You mean if we're looking for 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 real justice for something beyond reform, right? Zach Cheney Rice again. His piece is "His Name in Vain" about the murder of George Floyd, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Daniel writes, I would expect to see progress made in individual communities who can break through the red tape and make changes to our law enforcement apparatus. Are there any communities that appear to be making these kinds of changes already? Any come to mind, Zach Cheney Rice? Um, I mean, the ones that, that I, re- I I looked into most specifically for my article are ones that that um, are not. It seem to be falling short of the rhetoric. <laughs> I do think that there are, um, I mean, there are examples of of law enforcement budgets, for example, being reduced and some of that money being rerouted into um, into alternative, um, you know, social investments. Uh, I think you know, the proposal that Austin is still considering, although that doesn't, it's not looking super good at the moment, as I observe in the piece, but there's definitely been, there's definitely an ambition there and there's hope there um, from some members of the city council that that some of this money can be routed. So that's, that's one potential example. But as far as, I mean, it, again, we're also looking at such a short timeline. Yes, that it's, really that's a good point. Any kind of long-term effects coming out of any of these 
um, proposed changes, many of which aren't even actual changes yet. This is still in the kind of, um, in the generative stage. So uh, again, it's hard to say on, on those terms, but it's, it's really not very encouraging kind of at the outset. But again, I think we're gonna have to take a little more time and have a little more distance to see um, what kind of real effect any of these, these shifts, rhetorical and otherwise and material, um, actually have in these communities. One of the things I was struck by in your piece is while you do go over these things, these different examples, and you tell the story of the little girl, there's something very deeply personal somehow through it all, even though you yourself don't necessarily put yourself in the the piece um, as a specific example. But it made me wonder how much you assess your relationship with America by your relationship with law enforcement. Well, I mean, I, I don't think there, I don't think there are very many Americans who have not been, um, who have not been touched in some way by harmful law enforcement. I mean, whether they realize it or not, I think that this is something that um, you see sort of affecting how people regard their relationship to their country, their sense of safety. Um, I think it's um, something that you see weaponized and applied in really inappropriate and harmful ways all around you. I mean, I, it's just, it's, it's, it is, it's something that you see, I mean, in my community where I live, um, there are things that, I mean, you, you just see the police being involved in issues and situations where you can't help but wish that there was some other way to, uh, someone, someone, else, someone else to reach out to, somewhere else to, to go for some kind of accountability for harm. Um, and it's something that, you know, I don't think anybody has been really untouched by and that anyone can dispassionately look at and say has been working yes. to prevent violence in our communities and to stop violence in our communities. I mean, we have, we have totally, you know, laid a lot of, and Dr. Hinton made this point earlier, laid a lot of social problems at the feet of police that we are refusing to deal with sort of on the front end, whether by creating more robust uh, social services and communities that are then turned to, um, we then turn to police in order to, to, to solve those problems. So it's just something that we can't keep relying on, I think, long-term for these fixes. Well, Zach Cheney Rice, so appreciate you coming on today and reflecting with us. And thank you, our listeners. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.